host, Timothy Snyder. And although I think it is a particular kind of immodesty to present such a renowned scholar, I abide by the rules. So Professor Snyder is a historian at Yale University, and he is a permanent fellow at the Institut für die Wissenschaft Convention. He is an author of 11 books, many of which brought him such prominent accolades as the Prize of the Foundation for the Polish Science, Hannah Arendt Prize for Political Thought, and the Leipzig Book Award for European Understanding. Professor Snyder speaks five languages and reads 10, including Ukrainian, which is still a rarity in academia. In fact, Ukraine occupies a particular place in his heart. For once, he called Ukraine, I quote, the most interesting European country to study. Correct me if I'm wrong. Professor Snyder might not be aware, but I and he, we have a kind of professional relationship because I translated his now classical article, The Causes of Ukrainian-Polish Ethnic Cleansing of 1933 in Russian. Anyway, it's not about me today. As a public intellectual, Professor Snyder sometimes gives three lectures a day. So we really appreciate the time you found in your busy schedule for the Global, global Minds for Ukraine. Thank you once again. Very glad to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. Okay, so let's start our conversation. And uh, let me ask you the following question. Describing the road to unfreedom, you coined the notion of schizofascism. You described with this notion a regime which is unambiguously fascist, but refers to others as fascists. Uh, and you applied the notion to Russia. So the question, what about today? I mean, 2022. Is Russia still a schizofascist state or has it evolved into something else? Uh, well, I, I would say that when I use the term schizofascism to describe Russia in Road to Unfreedom, I was applying it to particular individuals like Dugin, like Prohanov. I was citing particular documents where people who are just unmistakably fascists are calling other people fascist who are not fascists at all. So I was trying to identify a phenomenon. I think since 2014, we've arrived at a place where schizofascism is clearly at the center of Russian policy. And the entire invasion of Ukraine is one large example of schizofascism, where we now have a regime, which by almost any criterion you can think of is fascist, invading another country while claiming that it is fascist. And this is, of course, very confusing for most European and American observers. Um, and I've been working hard to try to clear up that confusion. Um, but yes, I think what's, what's changed since then is that we've moved from a phenomenon to a foreign policy. Okay, thank you. Actually, let's continue with the idea of fascism. Marlene Lacruel, a scholar from George Washington University and a renowned specialist on Russia, she once criticized you for using the epithet fascist with regard to the Russian regime. In particular, she was not really convinced that the justification, for instance, of the Molotov-Robbentrop Pact or using the legacy of Ivan Ilyin, so that those were the facts which help or contribute to branding of the regime as fascist. Instead, if opted for, the fascist label should first fit Russia's political system, and second, elucidate some features of the regime. 
And actually, I think those are sensible suggestions. So the question, what are the indicators that Russia is a fascist state? You actually mentioned the invasion, the foreign invasion. You did this, but there should be other indicators. Napoleonic state wasn't fascist, wasn't it? So what are the indicators that Russia is a fascist state? And which elements of the Russian policy and politics would the world understand better if they accept that Russia is fascist? Because not everybody accepts it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, accept the, I accept the premise of the question. I think you put it exactly the right way. I mean, does, for, as for me, fascism is not, it's not an epithet. It's not, it's not just a word to be thrown around. It's, it's an analytical category. And so I quite agree that the, the right question is, do we understand more of the world if we use that category or we understand less of the world? So going back to your previous question, I think it's, it's, it's very important to start out by noting that fascism is about the priority of will over reason. Fascism is, is a project of political imagination, and therefore it's difficult to define it in a precise way. It, it, it defies clear definition because it, it, it itself involves a rejection of both factual and logical reality. Now, if we start from there, then we might have less resistance to associating phenomena, which we're used to calling postmodern, with fascism. So one of, one of my lines of analysis in Road to Unfreedom is that certain kinds of postmodern moves, like the rejection of factual reality, like the insistence on a kind of subjectivity, um, could be read in a fascist way. So for example, if everything is about subjectivity, then it, what if there's a monopoly on subjectivity? What if a leader is able to control television networks in such a way as to build a certain kind of subjectivity? Then suddenly we've looped around from what seemed like a liberating idea, namely that individual subjectivity is all that counts, to what is clearly a repressive idea, namely that one person might build a monopoly on subjectivity by saying there's no such thing as truth, and then by dominating spectacle, which is in fact a description of the Russian regime. I mean, not just mine, but plenty of other people have described it that way. So Pomerantsev, yes. Yeah, like Pomerantsev. So it's so it's not so it's not a matter then of just applying the term. It's a matter of saying there might be an unexpected route towards fascism. Another unexpected route towards fascism, which is on, dis it's on my mind because of yesterday, is the whole idea of, a, of, of victory as the central category of politics. Now, that may not have had fascist origins, but nevertheless, the notion that politics is all about victory can be a fascist interpretation. And as the word fascism in the Soviet Union and then in Putin's Russia lost all content and became the idea of just the enemy, right? A fascist in Russian usage is not someone who has fascist views. A, fascism is, a fascist is just the outsider. But of course, in fascism itself, politics begins from the definition of the enemy, right? That's Carl Schmitt's classic definition. And so if you just use the word fascist to mean the enemy, then you are engaged in a fascist practice, right? So if you have a day of victory, 
in which you just use the word fascist to mean the other, that is actually a rather fascist thing to do. That may have come from a Soviet tradition, and so we may not be, we may not be used to thinking of it as fascist, but in fact, it is. Um, and then as far as the characteristics of the regime, I mean, back in 2000, back when I published Road to Unfreedom, I was insisting on fascist ideas and fascist features of the regime. I wasn't saying then that Russia is a fascist regime. I would say it now. Um, I would say it now, because in addition to a cult of the leader, we only have one party that matters. We have ritualized elections. We have the propagation of a fantasy of a golden age in the past, which can only be restored by healing violence. That's Putin's ideology of the invasion of Ukraine. We have a cult of the dead, which again, although it might have had Soviet origins, the more time passes, the more the idea of the day of victory seems to be rather a cult of the dead. Um, it's, 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 we're getting ever closer to the fascist notion that the very mean of politics is sacrifice and that it's the job of the leader of the country or of the nation to translate death into political meaning, right? That's a fascist idea. And again, that's exactly what happens in contemporary Russia. We also have features like the total control of the media, um, the, the, the repetitive use of very simple forms of state propaganda. Um, and, you know, the, as I think I mentioned before, the politics of us and them. Uh, what, what, everything is about us and them. And then finally, to give one more fascist feature, Putin's idea that, the, the, that globalization and the West are corrupt and have forgotten our values, whereas it's only in our country that the basic values have been preserved, that also sounds rather familiar. So I, I, honestly, I think we've reached a point where the question might be asked more usefully in the other direction, namely, let's find a feature of Russian politics which is not fascist. I think that's actually at this point a more challenging question. Well, I concur and also we can argue that yes, that uh, another important feature, a classical feature of fascism is the corporate economy when state is actually running most of the parts of the economy, we find this as well in the fashion, in, in, sorry, in the Putin state, I meant. Oh, I think you're, I, I appreciate you're saying that because that, that this whole idea of corporatism is, is very central to fascism. And by the way, it's important that we're, I'm just going to repeat that we're using fascism as an analytical category here, which includes various cases like Italy or like the Romanian fascists who never, who never controlled the state. Yeah. Right. Romanian fascists are actually, in my view, most similar to Eileen and, and Putin. Like that's a tradition which I think is very close with its use of Christianity and with its appeal to orthodoxy. Right. That that I think are, those those the, those are the people who are closest. But my point here is that this is an interpretive category. And within that interpretive category, the, the corporate state is something which often gets overlooked. Um, the idea that the state is a kind of pyramid and that everything has its place and nothing should be out of place, that is a very central idea for the Italians, um, for the Austrian fascists, and also for Ivan Ilin himself, an important Russian fascist thinker. Everything has its place. There is no difference between state and civil society. You have a certain role and you fulfill that role. And ultimately everything is along, to use the word that Russians like to use, everything is along a vertical. Very well, thank you. You have done a great job explaining why Russia might be interpreted, and actually I, I think should be interpreted, I, I agree with you, as a fascist state. Uh, and now let's move a little bit further, because in one of your most recent articles, 
you advocated the neologism racism. And although you raised a number of convincing arguments for introducing this notion, there is something which makes me unsure whether we really should do it. Let me elaborate. So the, uh, here is like a comment to the, to the answer uh, question. I think it is counterproductive to substitute the generic term fascism with national variations. Because, you know, scholars, they refer sometimes to ustachism, to raxism, it's like a Belgian fascism, to integralism, French fascism, to metaxism, Greek fascism. And they always point to differences between these national variations and fascism as an ideal type. And there is even a scholarly tradition which argues that German national socialism was not fascism at all. And this constitutes a problem. Neologisms, they open the door for allegations something like racism and metaxism or racism for the matter, uh, they are phenomena which are different from pure fascism. And this is a step to exculpate fascists from their epoch to show them as not so really fascist. So here is the question. Mm -hmm. Could the benefits of using the notion of racism overweight the drawbacks? Or maybe I'm just, you know, over-dramatizing if there are, there are no drawbacks at all. Well, I think I think you know, Ivan. I think you're several like you're several steps away from all I was trying to do in my my little racism article. So in my racism article, um, which I'm very happy exists. I mean, we're now in a world where the New York Times Magazine let me write five thousand words about a single Ukrainian word, which is there's something marvelous about that because. It wasn't so long ago that Ukrainian culture just really didn't figure in the American mainstream at all, and suddenly I'm allowed to write 5,000 words about you know about this very this sort of you know minor Ukrainian linguistic phenomenon. What I was saying about racism, just for you know everyone who I'm sure hasn't read this article, is that it's an example of Ukrainian linguistic creativity, and so I spent a lot of time in this article explaining. Um, explaining that you know there's a Ukrainian neologism Rasha or Rashka, and explaining how Rashism is a is a kind of conglomerate of you know Rasha plus fascism, right? And explaining how this is an example of the of a larger practice of Ukrainian play with language, not just Russian but now English as well. And then what I was trying to do is to introduce a feature of Ukrainian culture. Which is this kind of creativity, because in in you know in the English language discussion about Ukraine, there's always this sense of well, are they really Russians because they speak Russian, or maybe they're Ukrainian nationalists because they speak Ukrainian, and somehow that doesn't leave room for the actual civic Ukrainian nation with its with its actual linguistic practices. So I was trying to give an example of how speaking two languages and even and even mixing them up can be a culturally creative. Act. That's what I was doing with racism. Like so, so which I in Ukraine, which in English I I I I transliterated or transcribed rather as as racism. Um, so you know, is this a useful category or not? I mean, the, 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 I mean, a, it's in massive Ukrainian use, right? So you can't get through the comment section, you know, <laughs> of of any Ukrainian you know article without getting, and, and it's also in use by the Ukrainian state. I mean, Ukrainian state is using, you know, racisti, racism constantly. So just as a kind of brute empirical fact, it's, it's out there in the world. The second point I would make is that unlike some of the other examples you get, racism or even Russism is clearly a kind of fascism. I mean, because of the way that it's spelled and because mm -hmm. of the way that it sounds. So I guess I'd be less concerned about it being treated as not 
fascism. And then if I would, I guess one, uh, my counter argument would be something like this. People have a hard time in my experience imagining that there can be such a thing as Russian fascism. Um, precisely because on the surface, there's all this anti-fascist rhetoric and because of the Soviet legacy of anti-fascism, which of course wasn't always so clear cut. And so I, I actually tend to think that a word which actually puts Russia and fascism together might be useful because not just in America, but in Germany, especially that there, there's a lot of difficulty actually imagining that Russia can be fascist, even when as we were talking about before, the signs of it are, are pretty strong. So I'm, I'm, I'm less worried about that. I mean, may, maybe you'll turn out to be right. We'll see, but I'm, I'm less worried about that. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Once again, it's only like a kind of a concern because I've seen too, too often those national variations with fascism, which actually diluted the common uh, roots of the national phenomenon with fascism. But anyway, I, once again, when I read the article, because I was a little bit skeptical, but when I read it, and I read it from the beginning to the very end, I said, well, that's a good point, actually. It is a one to discuss about, but it's a good point. So once again, thank you for those 5,000 words from the Ukrainian neologism. Now, let's add some history to our discussion, since you are a historian who writes many bo books about history. So people often use the notion of Ostpolitik to describe the policy of Willy Brandt. However, there is a more ominous meaning. In 1919, the Gen German Minister of Economic Affairs, Robert Schmidt, he suggested uh, that uh, Germany should restore economic ties with Russia as a means to get Germany out of a dire post-war economic circumstances. Once again, it is 1919. And uh, he had some reasons to advocate for this policy because Germany had been Russia's top trading partner in 1912 and 1913. And Russia had simultaneously been the second largest importer of German goods prior to the First World War. So Schmidt and his other colleagues at the German foreign ministry they constituted a group that would become known as the Ostpolitik faction. And they sought to normalize relations with Russia and push for economic collaboration. This Ostpolitik group, they envisaged that Germany as a producer of high-tech industrial products and Russia with its countless raw materials, they were natural allies. And uh, just reminding our public, not the professor of history, Weimar Republic, Weimar Germany, had just crushed a Spartakist rebellion, like a far left rebellion. Russia was a Bolshevik state, which was still eager to provoke a revolution in Germany. But despite those ideological differences, they collaborated and we had the Locarno Treaty, we had subsequent uh, German-Soviet cooperation uh, in many uh, uh, areas. So the net outcome of this cooperation were the bloodlands, and the destruction of East and Central Europe by Germany and Russia. Finally, the question, should we Ukrainians be concerned? Is there a geopolitical and maybe a materialistic reason for Germans' unwillingness to acknowledge its historical responsibility towards Ukraine? Well, yeah, yes, of course. I mean, so let me, let me, let me make a couple of points there. N number one, Ostpolitik um, can mean various things, but Ostpolitik um, in the last 
40 years or so has generally meant going to Moscow, either to Brezhnev's Moscow or to you know, Yeltsin's Moscow or, or Putin's Moscow. And in the German mind, Ostpolitik is connected to Vergangenheitsbewältigung um, or Erinnerungspolitik. It's connected to the project of getting over the past. And what, what's been dangerous here for Ukrainians has been the, the, the problem of Germans trying to come to terms with the past by talking to another imperial power. Because the overlap between German colonial practice and Russian colonial practice is ignoring Ukraine or treating Ukraine as a kind of, of, of object. I'm not trying to say that it's exactly the same, but there is a kind of there has been a kind of comfortable overlap. So naturally, neither Brezhnev nor Putin is going to remind, you know, Brandt or Gerhard Schroeder that Ukraine is a country and we should take it seriously. That's if, if Ostpolitik means going to Moscow, that's never going to happen. So what I've been trying to explain to Germans, and of course, many Germans understand this now themselves, is that an actual politics of memory or an attempt to come to terms with history has to begin with your, your own colonial practices. It has to begin with your own history as opposed to what happens to be convenient in foreign policy. And those two things are not always going to be the same. So Germans have to remember that the Second World War was actually a colonial war and that Ukraine was the main object of the Ukrainian war. And therefore Germans have to remember that if they're not used to talking about Ukrainians or if they find it easy to criticize Ukrainians and less easy to criticize Russians, that that might be a colonial inheritance which has to be worked through, which still requires a great deal of work. So of course you're right that the material interest can have you know, an ideological consequence. It might be convenient to imagine that you can go to Moscow to get forgiveness if you're also going to Moscow to get natural gas. Um, I mean, any Marxist <laughs> would make that point. But, um, but it, so, so what's, what's demanded is for, is for Germans to actually you know, realize that history and convenience are not always the same thing. And I think you know, you, what's happened, if I can put a kind of optimistic spin on a horrible situation, is that Ukrainians have forced Germans to recognize that Ukrainians are a subject in history and not just an object in history. And now what we've seen in the last few weeks is that Germans are having a discussion which really should have happened in the last few decades, right? I mean, there should have always been, I mean, at the very latest from 1991, there should have always been a German turn which said part of our policy of remembrance has to be about Ukraine because Ukraine was at the center of our colonial war. That hasn't happened. And so what we see then is all this German confusion of the last few weeks as this process which should have happened over decades is now being compressed into a matter of days. Thank you. Thank you. Once again, there is a well-known German notion of Mitteleuropa, which actually describes the bloodlands to be conquered and to be governed, but not to be let alone. So there, there is that problem. Well, now making the discussion a little bit more personal, a little bit, uh, and staying in the bloodlands still, I will quote one of your fellow historians, Richard Evans, 
who, while reviewing your book, I'm in the Bloodlands, he criticized your position on Entlösung. In a nutshell, he built a functionalist argument. Uh, he tried to explain in an article that the decision to exterminate Jews was produced not by a maniacal anti-Semitism of, of the Führer, but by what Martin Brossard once dubbed the institutional jungles of the Third Reich. So that discussion of the intentionalist and functionalist, it made sense uh, in 1980s to actually understand the Shoah, the Entlösung. Uh, but I want actually to temporalize the question. So what about atrocities committed by Russians in 2022? Would you espouse a functionalist or an intentionalist approach? So why did they do, why did, why did they commit Bucha? So there's an awful lot going on in your question and I have to slow down and maybe explain some of the premises of your question. Um, so first of all, I mean, as a, as a basic methodological point, the problem with a lot of dis German discussion of the Holocaust was that it's use of only German language sources. And so if you, if you only use German language sources, naturally you're going to be trapped into the kinds of options which you've just described. You know, is there an intention from Germany or is there a bureaucratic dynamic inside Germany? Um, the reason why I rejected both of those approaches is that I didn't think the Holocaust was possible to understand without seeing what happened when German force got beyond Germany. Mm -hmm. And so what was different, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm right about everything, but what was different about my own methodology is that unlike Professor Evans and unlike the German historians in the Historikerstreit, I was also using Yiddish sources and Polish sources and Russian sources and Ukrainian sources and so on. And those sources give you a different picture of what's happening in Eastern Europe. Um, th those sources allow you, for example, to see how important it was that the Soviet Union um, had destroyed state institutions before the Germans arrived. It allows you to see all kinds of micro-political phenomena, which then affects how the Germans take their own decisions. So, I mean, my, my argument in Bloodlands and then in Black Earth about the Holocaust is that you, you have to follow the Germans into the territories where they actually commit the crimes. And you have to understand certain things about those territories that the Germans themselves did not necessarily understand before you can explain what's going on. So my approach was actually very conservative. I mean, it's a very normal conservative historical approach to say, you have to collect all the sources and understand things that actors didn't understand. Whereas what Professor Evans is defending is a kind of standard conservative view, which says, let's look at everything from the point of view of the imperial power and only use their sources, right? Which I think turned out to be um, insufficient, to put it politely, with respect to the Holocaust. So my own argument is neither intentionalist nor functionalist. What it says is that the, the, the intentions of Hitler are very important, but they only matter once German power, or they chiefly matter once German power gets beyond Germany, and where Ger when German institutions are destroying other pre-existing institutions. The, the, the dynamics of German bureaucracy are also very important, but what matters more is the destruction of other bureaucracies which had already existed and which allowed people to be, even Jews, to be citizens of other flawed 
regimes. So I don't want to go into all the details, but I would just say that my, my argument is much more, it's much more has to do with, with, um, with, with a colonial scale and the war as it was actually fought than it does with um, narrow German interpretations. So with, with, with Bucha and with the Russian war of destruction in Ukraine, I would say that Putin's ideas are very important, but like Hitler's ideas, they have to do with the, they, they begin from the assumption that a country is only realized outside its own borders. So mm -hmm. again, I'm not saying the ideas are exactly the same, but they have this common feature. Hitler's idea was that the German race had a mission which could only be fulfilled beyond Germany. Putin has been saying that Russia only exists insofar as it absorbs Ukraine. Russia only becomes itself when it absorbs Ukraine. So that's an intention, but how that intention becomes a policy of mass murder can only be understood when that intention meets reality, right? So in the German case, Hitler has an intention that the Jews be removed from the world. How is that carried out in reality? Well, when, when his intention meets a kind of resistance in the form of the Red Army, also in the form of the Americans and the British coming into the war, the intention then becomes a reality, not in the way he expected, but in the killing of Jews where they lived. Again, not everything is the same, but if we look at Russia's policy towards Ukraine, Putin's intention involved Ukrainians surrendering, the Ukrainian political elite being murdered, and the rest of the Ukrainians turning out to be a kind of undefined mass, which would go along with Russia. When that turned out not to be true, then there has to be an escalation. If there are more people who identify with Ukraine, that means more people have to be deported and more people have to be murdered. So you can only understand the intention when you get into contact with the other country, right? So in that, so in that sense, like my analysis would, analysis would begin a kind of colonial analysis where you have ideas about the, the country to be subjugated, but those ideas only become policy in a kind of interaction with what actually happens in the country itself. Thank you very much. Once again, I, I have to apologize if my question was too dense, too packed, but I actually think that you made a great job answering it, uh, showing actually the, the functional approach to the issue and the, the, that idea of Lebensraum, or I don't know, which Russians are using and which actually made them more murderous than might be maybe they didn't intend to be. So once again, I apologize if the question was packed. Uh, let's continue. Let's continue with the, the similar problems and actually with Evans. Uh, Guido Franzizetti once noticed that this public disagreement of yours with Richard Evans is also a matter of generational difference between a historian who belongs to the British New Left, I mean Evans, and a historian who, who grew up under the shadow of the Historikerstreit, you referred to it, and to you yourself, you called yourself the last Cold Warrior Generation member. So the question, could a generational difference explain why some historian and public intellectuals espouse a relatively pro-Russian view? And since, I, I really want you to be a little more precise. Here is some context. In a recent article, Shayla Fitzpatrick claims that there was, has been a civil war in Ukraine since 2014. 
she explains that Ukraine must not join NATO because, I quote, Ukraine was a foundational member of the Soviet Union since the early 1920s. And she, Ukraine, has uh, close uh, ties to the Russians in language and culture. So we have a very particular pro-Russian uh, position of Fitzpatrick. And there is a professional political philosopher, Noam Chomsky, who has recently suggested that President Zelensky should pay attention to the reality of the world, that was a quote, which effectively meant, another quote, accepting federalization of Ukraine and the renunciation of Crimea. So my question, once again, wrapping it up, why did Fitzpatrick and Chomsky take such an apologetic approach to invasion? And going from personalities uh, to public opinion, why some leftists, despite their evolved anti-imperialism, tend to align with Russia? Isn't it paradoxical that they support a traditionalist, chauvinistic, chronic capitalist Putin's regime? So is it about generations? Is it about ideology? What is happening? Yeah, I mean, I have, I mean, first of all, I'm gonna answer this question in terms of phenomena rather than personalities, because it seems like, you know, the question to Professor Fitzpatrick is a question to her. Um, and the question of Professor, to, um, to Professor Evans is a question to him, to Professor Chomsky, it's a, it's a question to him. Um, but I'd be more comfortable with phenomena. And one of the phenomena is very simple. Have these people been to Ukraine or not? Have, have, have they? They? I don't know. Have no, they? No, it's a rhetorical question. They have not. <laughs> <laughs> so, or, or, or rarely, right? Or not, or not recently. Um, I mean, the, this, so this, when I, when I think of Maidan, which was, you know, in, a, a, in which there was a similar controversy in which, which was actually much worse, in which Russian propaganda functioned much better than it does now. One of my basic, my first question was, have you actually been to Ukraine? And that really decided a lot. I mean, it decided more, I think, than generation or even politics. People who had been to Ukraine generally would see Ukrainians as actors and would be less likely to think I have to accept, you know, some other, some Russian view of what's of what's going on. And the thing, and the reason why experience is so important, I think, is that to you, 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 the Ukrainian nationhood or subjectivity is much more about action than it is about declaration. And it's much more about the future than it is about myths about the past. And so myths about the past and ideology are pretty easy for intellectuals to process, right? Whereas experience and ideas about the future tend to require more person-to-person -person contact. So then a, second, and then a second source of all this, I think, I mean, you were kind enough to mention language earlier. Um, you know, it, it has to do with language. I mean, there are people who don't, you know, there are most people know neither Russian nor Ukrainian. And then most of the people who know Russian don't know Ukrainian. Um, and and that, that matters an awful lot too. Um, there aren't very many of us in the West who are kind of happily functioning in Ukrainian, but that makes a, that just makes an awful, that makes a huge difference as to whether you see people as subjects or not, or whether you're relying on another country, you know, relying on Russia to interpret Ukraine for you. Um, and that's a very central issue to me because I guess in pronouncements like Ukraine has to do this or Ukraine has to do that, I'm very uncomfortable with that. Like I'm very uncomfortable with saying that Kenya has to do this or that 
Guatemala has to do this or Canada. I mean, I'm very uncomfortable with people in the West or in the United States saying, you, I'm gonna tell you what reality is. Mm -hmm. And then you have to accommodate yourself to reality. I'm very uncomfortable with that because it seems to me that that's a kind of imperialism. You know, when you say, I can see reality um, and you can't see reality because you're a small, unimportant country. So let me tell you what reality is and how you have to adjust to reality. That strikes me as a kind of imperial position, which leads me to um, another point you asked about the left. I think a lot of, I mean, a part of, a lot of the problem here is that the American left, at least, and the German left does this too, um, they engage in a kind of inverted nationalism. So, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you're on the American right, you think America does everything in the world and that's great. And if you're on the American left, or at least parts of the American left, you say America does everything in the world and that's bad. You know, I'm simplifying a little bit, but that's like, that's the basic idea. And so it's very, once, so once you take that inverted imperialist position, it's very hard for you to see agency. So you don't see agency in Russia. You don't think the Russians had any choice. You say, well, Putin had to do it because of NATO. Right. And that's comfortable because it, de it, it, it confirms your deep down assumption that America is responsible for everything. And then if you say, well, the Ukrainians don't have any choice, they have to surrender because I said so. Again, you know, that's comfortable. Or if you say the Ukrainians aren't, you know, as people on the far left say, Ukrainians aren't really fighting a war. It's just a proxy war or it's the Americans really, that's very comfortable because it, it confirms your own assumption that it's really America that's running the world. So there is, I mean, so part of the explanation I think is this inverted nationalism where, um, where many people on the left are basically kind of imperialists, but you know, arrebour, imperialists in reverse, where they share the imperialist assumption on the right that one country is really responsible for everything and should be responsible for everything. And, you know, so, so I mean, America is a, is a power and America does colonial things. And a lot of the things that, for, us, for example, Professor Chomsky says about America and Guatemala are certainly true, but it doesn't follow from that, that America is always responsible for everything and that no one else has any agency around, around the world. And I think the idea that no one has any agency except America is, is comfortable for a certain part of, of the American left. And then there's also just this basic problem that no one knows anything about Ukrainian history, which you know, some of us have been working very hard on, on trying to solve these, these last few years. But if nobody knows anything about like history, what history does is that it gets in the way of simple narratives, like Ukraine has never existed or, um, Ukraine has Ukrainian culture has always been part of Russian culture. Those are simple narratives and they're appealing because of their simplicity. History gets in the way of that. And so you always need more, we need much more history than, we've, than we actually have. Oh, once again, thank you very much. And I must admit that uh, since the war erupted, I repeat rather, rather let's say every, to everyone who cares to listen to that uh, one positive thing coming out of this war is that it will kill, it might kill, the notion of post-Soviet studies, when people just take Russian language skills and the Russian mode, and they think that they can explain by the example of Russia, everything which happens in Ukraine and in Kyrgyzia and in Kazakhstan. Because actually 30 years has passed and we 
have taken very different trajectories. So you actually have to go to the sources, I mean, the, to the context, and you cannot understand the Ukrainian context without Ukrainian language or Kazakh context without Kazakh language. So yeah, I, I do agree, people who don't come here who haven't mastered the language, they actually alienated from the, from the issues on the ground, I think. But there, there's also, I mean, there's just a general point there about decentering history, which is not just about Russia. And this goes back to your point about, I mean, the question about the left. In general, I agree with people on the left who say that American history has to be treated critically. We have to bring in the voices that have been ignored. We have to listen to the things that make us uncomfortable. Right. So in America right now, there's a big debate about whether children should have to listen to history, which is not comfortable. And I think they have to. I mean, we, we, you don't, history is always uncomfortable. But if you take that view about America, you also have to take that view about China. Yeah. And you also have to take that view about Russia. I mean, if, the whole, if history is about uncomfortable things, then you can't approve Russian memory laws. Then you can't approve Russian taboos about Holodomor. If, if, if empire is to be questioned and decentered, then it has, you have to do that everywhere. It has to be a general methodological practice. You can't just say, well, we're gonna do it in one country, but in other countries, imperial discourse is just fine, right? That's, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, exactly. And there is a kind of maybe myopy of hypocrisy. It is a matter of debate, what, which precisely, uh, but I mean, when uh, you have a chronic capitalist regime, and the leftists actually accept it and everything it does to enrich only a fracture of society and yeah. making others people, people poor. So it, it's quite a bizarre. And I think there will be kind of soul searching among the left circles as well, whichever way this finishes, I mean, the war. Uh, I, would, I think it's, but I, think it's a, I mean, look, I'll, this will make a very optimistic point or a very hopeful point. I think it's the chance for the revival of the left because yeah. the idea that, you can be the left just by identifying with the people who criticize America doesn't work at all. Because who criticizes America? Beijing and Moscow. Those are the most powerful critics of America. And you just can't be on the left by identifying yourself with those kinds of regimes. As you say, you have to be on the left by identifying with certain kinds of principles. You've implied one principle, which is equality. Right. So that good. So identify with equality. That's great. And then that becomes a way of criticizing Beijing and Moscow and also to a lesser extent America. But certainly, you know, my my way of thinking about this has always been to say that Russia is not an alter. You know, it's not an alternative to the United States. It's more like a cracked mirror. I mean, it's more like a place where the United States can go. Um, if we allow our own oligarchy to proceed to an extreme, then we end up in a place like Russia. So let's use Russia as a, as a, as a check, right, on, 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 on the way we shouldn't be, as to imagining that Russia is some kind of alternative or a source of criticism, because that is clearly not. Yeah, yeah, I, I do agree. I do agree. But let's continue with history and the kind of psychoanalysis. I'll explain what I'm meaning. So... Stalin, he was offended by the miracle on the Vistula. And once again, you can disagree or agree, just give me a hint whether you, you, you are on the same page in this respect that I am. But I think that being offended by the miracle on the Vistula and the huge debacle the Soviet army 
that the Red Army uh, got uh, by the Polish people. So he harbored some resentments toward the Polish nation. And it was at least partially responsible for his murderous attitude toward the Poles, which you actually described in several of your books. Putin, he was offended by the Orange Revolution. So is this what that's all about? A dictator and his personal trauma? Is this a part of the uh, hatred we see uh, in Putin's eyes toward Ukraine? Or there is something more? Well, I, I, first of all, I think your point should be read as a kind of analytical point about tyranny. So um, whether or not we think of, of psychoanalysis or not, it's clearly a problem when an individual's prejudices or traumatic experiences with respect to another collectivity become the basis of policy, right? That's just a problem, whether it's about Poles or Ukrainians or whatever, that's clearly a problem. And it is a problem that we see in kind of spectacularly clear form with Putin right now. Um, this is what, when you have an, an aging obsessive dictator who is increasingly unchecked by other institutions, you're gonna get something like this. Right, because he, he people, it's harder and harder for the tyrant to distinguish his own traumas and obsessions from the interests of his country. And at this point, Putin is not making that distinction at all. Just where it comes from, though, you know, actually pr pr pretending to be the psychoanalyst, I think, is harder. Um, but I think that there are a lot of things that are going on here. Um, I mean, part of it. I mean, there's there's the inheritance of the Soviet Union in which Russia is the victor in the Second World War and the Ukrainians are in an ambiguous position and you're allowed to call them fascists um, when that's convenient, for example, under Zhdanov. Um, there's the, there's, there's the, there are the Brezhnev years when Putin was young, where the idea was that there's going to be this, you know, Slyanya, that like, that, that you only, that there might be variety in the Soviet Union, but really only Russian counts. We only really need a Russian intelligentsia. That's what that's what really matters, and that that's that's normal. And th and then you know, and then I think there is maybe the, more importantly, there's the failure of Putin's initial project, which was to try to create a Russia, which was in some way a rule of law state. He, that's what he says he's going to do, but he ends up along the way becoming the head of the only oligarchical clan that matters, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of getting rid of oligarchy, he centralizes oligarchy and makes oligarchy the central proposition, the central principle of his own rule. And once you've done that, then domestic reform becomes impossible. And the only realm of state action is outside, you know, whether that is Ukraine, whether that's Georgia or whether that's Ukraine, you know, and, it, and or whether that's Syria. I mean, I found it very striking that the last time around, after the, the last Russian invasion of Ukraine, when that reached its limits, they immediately switched to Syria. There was a weekend in the end of September 2015, where the entire Russian press just switched from Ukraine to Syria, right? And what's missing is an idea of Russian policy or what Russia is going to be in the future. So once you freeze Russia into an oligarchy, then the, the action has to be somehow outside. Right. Um, and, and also it can't the action can't be in the future. It has to somehow be in the past. It has to be about, 
you know, it has to be about the baptism of, you know, Volodymyr, or it has to be about, it has to be about the Second World War. Um, it has to be about some kind of, some kind of myth, some kind of moment when everything was fine in the past. And the reason why you have to do it that way is you can't talk about the future, because once the state becomes an oligarchy, there is no future. You can't change anything with the state at that, at that point, right? You have to, you have to operate inside the past. So there are many sources of this, um, and I don't think all of them are just in the last few years. I think some of them go back much further. Okay, thank you, thank you. I have several more questions, but I also cannot usurp the microphone, so I'll also um, voice out the questions by the public. But two questions I think are, are for me, are important to be asked. So the one, the first one, is about the COVID. You yourself had a personal or a drastic experience with the disease. And how do you think, could COVID be responsible for the deterioration of Putin, Putin's policy? I mean, he used to be a master of po policy, po policy making, yes? And of public presentations. And today he's like a broken man who everything he touches becomes not gold, but I don't want to use words here that I don't want to swear. So he, he's like a counterpart of what he used to be. Is it because of COVID? Could it be that was the, the reason of COVID? Well, so I, th I think COVID is, is connected to this war in, in a couple of ways. But I mean, first of all, the, the very fact that we're asking this question, to repeat a point I made earlier, shows how we're in the classic realm of tyranny like tyranny as described by, you know, Plato, tyranny as described by Shakespeare, where it's all about the, you know, is he sick, right? That's a question that only matters when you're in this realm of personal rule, yeah. right? And so, you know, whether or not I have a satisfactory answer for you, like I agree with the premise, which is that we, we have to talk about things like that because of the nature of the Russian political system, right? Um, so my, my, what I can tell from a distance is that COVID isolation is a bad thing psychically for everyone. And it does seem that Mr. Putin was especially concerned, let's say, about the possibility that he would become sick. And um, so, so that, th those two years where he was even more isolated from contact with other people than he would have been, I tend to think probably accelerated a process which was going on anyway of his moving away from the tactics that he was once so good at, right? The kind of, the, the, you know, the, 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 the Poles have a nice word, sociotechnica, which also exists, I know, in other languages. Um, you know, that the, 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 the social technology that he was once so good at and towards this world of ideology in which he alone is the savior of his country. I think it accelerated that, that, that process. I think it also the fact that COVID meant that there was just less interaction among countries. I think that probably also accelerated this this, this war. It made everything seem more. It made everything seem abstract. Uh, it made everything seem abstract. And there's a. I mean, there's a. And then just as an under, as as just a kind of um, a footnote to all this. I think one of the reasons why people. One of the reasons why people looked at Zelensky in the first few days of the war and said, okay, this is like, this is something we're very happy to see is that suddenly like this was a country and a man who were taking control of their own situation. You know, like, to turn this around, I think the world has been also frozen by COVID 
And the fact that people looked and said, okay, here's someone who is taking initiative at this time when we've all in a way been constrained. Like I think people found something healthy in this horrible situation. I'm not trying to make it good, um, but in this horrible situation, I think in a way, the fact that we were all shut down by COVID meant that people were ready for some, ready for a Zelensky or ready for a Ukraine to say, look, there's something more important and immediate happening right now. And human beings can actually rise up and react to it in a flexible, creative way. I think that's one of the reasons why Ukraine has been heartening for a lot of people is, is that. Yeah, thank you. I would only add that in addition to Plato and Shakespeare, uh, that reading of the tyrannical system, it also coincides with the Bruce Banner de Mesquites explanation that in dictatorships, a sick dictator is the problem of the whole system. And when he is dying, you might see really drastic changes. So yeah, it is about the system, not about the one person we are talking about actually now. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And my last question, and then we'll try to pick up the best questions from the public, is about one of the first book of yours. In the reconstruction of nations, Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania, and Belarus, you actually tried to show to the Western public a forgotten country, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And you depicted it, and I think correctly, as a multi-ethnic, multilingual confederation that managed to keep a diverse territory almost in peace for roughly two centuries. And today, Poland and Lithuania are amongst the most ardent supporters of Ukraine. So mm -hmm. is this a sign of the Commonwealth being resurrected? Well, you know, the, the, so the Commonwealth isn't going to be resurrected because the Commonwealth was based upon the idea that, um, you know, about 10% of the population should be allowed to own land and vote, <laughs> which yeah, I do agree. It was which medieval. At the, which at the time was quite, I mean, at, at the time that was actually quite progressive, especially the, the voting part. But so, I mean, I, I would think about it in a, you know, not so much in a kind of revival sense. I mean, I know you didn't mean that literally, but more in the sense of, um, well, I would think about it more, you know, as I also think about the Habsburg monarchy as a question about what the 21st century is actually like. So is the 21st century about empires breaking up into small homogenous units, which have very simple languages and tell very simple stories? Or is the 21st century about units which, although they're post-imperial, are not homogenous, that work creatively with some of the imperial inheritances, right? So in this sense, I mean, what I'm saying is that maybe Ukraine is a bit more normal than one might have thought. And that like when we think of the Commonwealth or the Habsburg monarchy as European entities, which are actually very durable, mm -hmm. more durable than nation states, mm -hmm. that can help us to see just in a very rough way that something like Ukraine is possible, right? So a decentral, a place where it's not the center that matters, right? The decentralization is very important that there can be multiple religions and even multiple languages. And the place can not only function, but maybe in some ways function better than homogenous units. So I'm going to, I'm taking your question in a different, in a different direction. When it comes to Poland and Lithuania, I would, I would say that that's more about like what um, I think it was a Czech philosopher, Jan Patochka, I think is the one who said this, but the solidarity of the shaken, where it's, there's a kind of 
there's a recognition of similarity, right? Mm -hmm. So especially like in the, you know, in the Polish welcome of Ukrainian refugees, yeah. which if you just look narrowly at the history of Polish-Ukrainian relations, that's not, it's not at all obvious that something like that would happen. But if you look at it more broadly as Poles recognizing something happening to someone else, which is similar to something that happened to them, then it becomes more explicable. And I think that is in fact what's happening, right? So it's not exactly the Commonwealth, but it's more like, it's more of a 20th century phenomenon where Poles are able to say, yeah, we see, we understand, you know, we, we, we get that. We, we see where you're coming from. And the same with Lithuania, that like, it's a, it's a recognition, you know, of a certain kind of pattern. Okay, thank you. And I have to admit, you got it right. It was not a literal question about the resurrection of Commonwealth. It was like a meta metaphor. Uh, so thank you for answering my questions. And now we have like six minutes. We promised to have a one hour net, 60 minutes net. So I will follow our agreement. There is a very interesting question by Roman Stiblivsky, which actually shows that, uh, that uh, the gentleman read text of yours. So he wonders whether it is possible that the eternity politics in Russia uh, would be changed. And if yes, if positive, under what, what circumstances? So when we... When we when we look at we look at the whole broad sweep of European history, um, European countries have to lose imperial wars. Mm -hmm. That's what has to happen. I mean, for France to be France as it is today, it had to lose in Algeria and in Vietnam. Um, for Germany to be Germany, it had to lose on the Eastern Front. For the Netherlands to be the Netherlands, it had to lose in Indonesia. For Portugal and Spain to be Portugal and Spain, they had to lose in Africa. That, that you know, this is the way it goes. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not saying that losing in war is always going to be a sufficient condition for transformation, but I think it's a necessary condition. I think the only way for Russia to have a serious conversation about Russia is for Russia to lose this war. So that that's my that's my short that's my short answer. You know that the imperialism allows the past to be recycled, and that's what Putin is doing. And the past, you know, notions of past greatness as a substitute for present policy only break when you're confronted with a very basic kind of reality, which is that we can't really be an imperial imperial power because we just lost a war against a much small against what we thought was going to be an easy opponent. Now that so that so I would like to I, I don't think that Russia escapes from this general pattern. Um, I think that Russia has to lose this war for there to be a discussion in Russia about what Russia actually is. Um, and that's not like that's it's not going to be easy or simple, but I think that's you know that's that's my basic answer. The politics of eternity only can only change when the political discussion ceases to be about becoming ourselves by destroying other people. Okay. Thank you. I hope Roman Stublivsky is satisfied with the answer. I myself am. Uh, there is another very interesting question, and it brings us back to the Erinnerungspolitik in Germany. So a gentleman wonders whether the recent debate in Germany about whether it is useful and even permissible to supply Ukraine with arms, whether it has something to do with the German memory politics in, in Germany. 
So how do you think, and in particular, there was a scandalous, at least in Ukraine, uh, article by Jürgen Habermas, where he refers to Ukraine in not so good terms. So let's start with the weapon question. Whether the politics of Russia toward the, uh, of uh, Germany toward the uh, weapon supply to Ukraine has something to do and what does it have to do with the Erinnerungspolitik memory policy? Yeah, I mean, it has every, it has everything to do with the Erinnerungspolitik. Um, so first of all, to be fair, I think the Germans are absolutely right that democracy depends upon with upon a constant re-engagement with history. I think they're right about that. And, you know, when, when we say Russia has to engage its own past and so on, we should recognize that the only the country in Europe which says that you should engage with its past is Germany. Now, does that mean that Germans are always correctly engaging with their own past? No, because part of engaging with your own past is recognizing that your prior interpretations were not necessarily correct. And so in, in the German case, much of Erinnerungspolitik has been based upon the has been has been connected to Ostpolitik, returning to your earlier question. So sometimes the Erinnerungspolitik has gone in the direction of what's comfortable as Ostpolitik. In other words, if we're going to express our guilt for the Second World War, let's do so with respect to Moscow. And in order to have an honest Erinnerungspolitik, history has to be included. And what history says is that you know, the German, the German war in, on the Eastern Front was largely about Ukraine, largely fought in Ukraine. Ukraine was supposed to be the, ma the main German colony. And so what the Germans didn't do is they never directed an Erinnerungspolitik towards Ukraine. That never happened. It didn't happen during the Cold War, obviously, but it also hasn't happened in the 30 years since 1991. And so the Germans now are still in a way recovering from their own colonial attitude towards Ukraine, which was reinforced by colonial attitudes towards Ukraine coming from Russia. There's been a kind of, they're not the same thing, but there's been a kind of overlap of a, 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 a German tradition of not seeing Ukraine as a subject with a Russian tradition of not seeing Ukraine as a subject. And so now the Germans in the last few weeks have been trying to recover from the absence of this, of this conversation. But the reason for hope is that you can always appeal to the principle that you have to think of the past and you can make the argument to the Germans that look, this was a colonial war and you have never come to terms with it. And now is the time to come to terms with it. It's, it's of course, so, so, so the debate is about what it means to take historical responsibility. And I think, you know, if you're Ukrainian or if you're interested in Germany, you have to engage in the debate at that level, because only at that level can you actually win, win the argument, because those are the parameters, those, those are the rules. The people who say, you know, let's just listen to Russia or Ukraine should surrender, I mean, they, they, their notion of historical responsibility, in my view, is very is narrow and, and misunderstands what actually happens in the war. So, I mean, if you think that Germany shouldn't help Ukraine because um, that just extends the war, then you, then you would also say logically, America shouldn't have helped Britain because that just extended the Second World War, right? On that principle, the aggressor is always right. And that, for me, that's not the right lesson from the Second World War. Um, you, there has to be a more sophisticated lesson. And, and, and you know, very, I mean, I'm, I'm telling Ukrainians this instead of Germans, so you already know this, but the first step of coming to terms with the past 
is listening to the other side. And there, the Ukraine, there I'm very sympathetic with Ukrainians because the Germans have had a very hard time listening to Ukrainians. Um, and, and, and there's been a lot of irritation and a lot of just rudeness of Germans towards Ukrainians. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that's, you know, that's a sign of a failure. Like you don't accept the other side as an equal partner in discussion. Um, you just find them irritating. You want them to go away. You know, you want everything to be simple. Okay. Wow. I think we have run out of your time. So thank you for an inspiring talk. Actually, this was like a real event for Global Minds for Ukraine. Timothy Snyder, professor of Yale University, was here talking with us. Thank you for sharing your expertise. And it is no more morning in America. It is a day. So have a good day. Thank you for your time, Professor okay. Snyder. Вам також дуже дякую за зустріч. Це було дуже і дуже цікаво. Гарного вам дня. До побачення. До побачення.